Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found check battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Whitetail Legacy Podcast. Tomorrow is opening day. It's morning, then I have a great hunt, deer didn't move like usual. Yeah, we just got set up in the middle of this bedding thicket. And saving this spot from the rut. It's a nice, I think it's a nice buck. Boom! It's a 170. That was money. I think it's down right over there. 10 yards. Whitetail Legacy Podcast, bringing you back to the hunt and leaving a legacy. Baller rut. Welcome to the Whitetail Legacy Podcast, coming in your ear holes. And this week's episode, we're talking with Dieter Knock. Dieter is a professional dog trainer as well as a canine police officer. And his job is to train these dogs and work with these dogs, see how they react to ground scent, whether they are chasing someone and trying to find a person or trying to find something that someone has hid. Um, he works with them weekly, um, and he is has very good insight on how the dogs react to wind scent, um, how they react to ground scent, um, and just a whole basis. And he is also a very, very skilled whitetail hunter, so over the year, years of doing this, he has put this into the practice of seeing what the dogs do and then relating it to what the deer do. And he's seen that there's a lot of similarities in what they do. Um, I met Dieter at the Mobile Hunter Roadshow in Iowa and uh, had a good conversation with him. He did a speech that I really enjoyed about scent and wanted to have him on the podcast, you guys and me, to dig into a little bit deeper of how deer react to smell, how they react to ground scent. And there's a lot of cool topics in this episode where different things you step on hold more ground scent. They track ground disturbance, not only scent. Um, There's ways to go about it. There's the right time to check trail cameras or the right time not to check trail cameras. How deer react to 
Wincent, um, factors of that. There's a lot to dissect in this episode. Um, and I had a really good chat with him. He also mentioned gray light, which is something he's, uh, did over the past few years. That's just a little bonus, you know, talking about going in at gray light and seeing how the deer react to that. He also is an e-bike manufacturer. So he talks about his e-bike brand. If you have any, want any information about that, he's very, very knowledgeable in that. It won't just get you to try to buy a bike. He's going to actually teach you what to look for in this e-bike because they are kind of new. And if you're anything like me, you don't really know a lot about them. All right, let's get into the people who make this show possible. We'll get right into it. Starting off with Exodus. Exodus is doing something really cool this month. I'm going to let you guys know about. Then we're going to get into the Exodus update. Um, but let's face it. We all have a camera that's just lying around. It's either broken or not working at all. And right now... After a bunch of feedback from last year, the Exodus is bringing back the upgrade program. So this is how it works. Um, any, you can order any camera on ExodusOutdoorGear.com and use code UPGRADE. It's all caps, and it'll save you 25% on any Exodus render, rental bundle, rival, or rival bundle. After placing your order, the Exodus team will send you a return label for your trade-in camera. After we send your camera... They will ship you your full order. If the, if you're new to Exodus, uh, they have the five-year warranty, five-year theft and damage covered, and the best-in-class customer service. I've used in the Exodus for six years now, had incredible uh, success, reliability, and I still have cams out right now with the solar panels running. So basically, in a nutshell, you can take an old junky cam that you have laying around doing nothing and say you want to get your first Exodus or your fifth Exodus, it doesn't matter. You send this, you order that cam, they send you out, you're going to get that cam at 25% off by trading in one of those old cams. And they actually collect these cams and make cool videos with them. Um, so maybe you get to see your cam in a video that they're going to release as well. Um, so if you want the full deep details, you can go to exodusoutdoor.com and, uh, and use, like I said, use that code UPGRADE, all caps. Um, but for the Exodus update, guys, I'm going to make a service announcement for everybody that is a hunter out there. Do not, I repeat, do not steal people's trail cams. Do not steal their stands. Do not steal their SD cards. If you are doing this, you are low, low, low on the quality people list. Okay, I'm being pretty nice here. Um I have got burned year after year after year. I went and pulled four cams incredibly deep. It took me three and a half hours. Two cams didn't have SD cards, and two cams were gone. So these were all year soaks on property, and I was banking on getting a lot of intel on them. And I'm going to take responsibility. I'm going to take ownership. These cams were not locked. The SD cards were not locked. That's something that I'm going to change. I have a process that I've made where I'm going to be locking these cams and locking the SD card doors without buying 50, you know, 45 uh, Python locks because they're pretty expensive. I found a cheaper solution that I'm going to be doing. But if you walk past a cam, I always say just do the right thing on here. And, you know, doing the right thing is the harder thing 99% of the time, right? It's way easier just pull that SD card, see what's in there. Nobody's going to know it was you, but was it the right thing? You know that it wasn't the right thing, and that's something that you have to live with. Um, and 
I know that a lot of people are getting smarter and they're putting dummy cams and putting other cams up to try to catch these people. And you do not want to be that guy that's posted, do you know this guy on Facebook and 38 people are calling you out uh, because you've stolen something or you stole an SD card. Um, the cam, one of the cams that I personally got stolen on the inside of black purple, purple or a black permanent marker, I wrote, don't be a douchebag. And that guy was so low that he opened that up and it said, don't be a douchebag. And then he still stole the SD card out of it. I mean, whether he couldn't either, he couldn't read or he's just like, I don't really care about this guy at all. I'm going to be a douchebag no matter what this guy says. It's more important for me to get the intel in here and do no work um, and steal this content. Um, so rant over. Do the right thing, guys. I've been saying on in here for years. I try to do the right thing in every single situation I am. And it's the right thing is always harder. It's always easier to do the wrong thing almost every single time. But just try. If, if, you, if you have done that in the past or if you... No, if it's happened to you, you know, there's only two ways to fix it. Either you change and start locking your stuff up, which is what I'm going to do, or the people change. So I've mentioned both these options in here, so hopefully you don't have the same circumstances like I did. I was really excited to pull these cams, um, you know, four cams, all your soaks. One of them had 52% battery life left, you know, no SD card. Um, the other one was still on. As well, I think it was around 20. These had lithium batteries in them running all year. Um, and like I said, I had two stolen and the other two. So just in the battery cost alone wasted, you know, I'm talking 20, almost 20 bucks a cam in batteries because lithiums are so damn high. So there's 40 bucks wasted plus the cost of SD card, 32 gig cards, like 12, 14 bucks. You know, it, you're stealing a lot of money and a lot of intel. To, to cheat to try to get a deer quicker by getting the intel instead of you working for it. But that's the end of the rant. Um, let's get in this episode. Hopefully you do it. Like I said, there's a lot of good content in here. Um, hope you guys enjoy. All right, we got Dieter on. Um, how you doing tonight, brother? Doing great. How about you? Doing good. Appreciate you spending a little time with me on this Monday evening. Um, I met you at the Lone Wolf Show. Didn't get to chat too long. Um, lots of people there wanting to chat, whitetail. I kind of hung back and uh, let the other people, you know, get in there and chat. But I, you kind of did a speech, stood up, showed us your gear, and then showed us what you do. Um, and then they said, if you have any questions about, you know, smell or scent or anything, this is the guy to direct it to. And I, um, that was back in the summer. I was like, man, I got to get this guy on a podcast. Um, so I'm doing this Back to the Basics series, and what's more basic than scent um and and scent control that's kind of the one of the key uh basics of whitetail hunting so i appreciate you coming on and chatting with this yeah my pleasure it's definitely uh i enjoy the the conversation about it it always gets heated on i mean facebook's a terrible place to have any type of conversation oh yeah i think this topic does particularly poorly so yeah this broadheads and uh baiting like those are the three no no fly zones <laughs> yeah if you chat with those there's one guys that there's two guys on each side of the spectrum but i think we'll probably be pretty close um in our beliefs here just from the way you spoke at the show but before we get too in depth in this uh go ahead and uh let the people know a little bit about you and 
and your job title and what you actually do? Yes. So I'm 48 now. So I've been bow hunting for 30 years, pretty much just bow hunting. And for the last 15 years, I've been with the Michigan state police. And then the last six years of that, I've been in the canine unit. So I have a narcotics and tracking dog. So he's trained to track whether it's a missing subject or a, a suspect in a, you know, we're rare, we're rather wooded up here. So understanding how odor reacts and wooded environments and different things like that has kind of correlated back to what I knew about bow hunting coming in. Yeah. I, I bet you when you got that job title or you got that opportunity, you're like, man, this is going to help me out a lot. I'm going to get to see what this dog does out here. Um, try, you know, following these trails. Um, pretty, pretty awesome to, to learn some, uh, you know, a trait like that, that you really can't learn unless you're in that position. It was extremely eye-opening from a couple different angles. I mean, one, I think it helped a lot that I, that I bow hunted to, when I started running the dog, because, you know, there's times where you're going to have to make decisions where you're going to look for, for that subject or where you're going to try to find that odor. And the, what I knew from bow hunting helped me as a canine handler. And then as I worked with the dog more and more, and we get to train our work day on pretty much every Thursday, all we do is train the dog. So being able to kind of set up different scenarios with the, with the, the dogs, you know, particularly with like elevated finds and trees and stuff like that was really eye-opening because that type of situation is particularly dangerous for us if we're going after somebody who has a gun. So understanding how the dog's going to react to, to odor and in those situations was uh, very interesting <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, that's not, that's something I didn't even think about. You know, you put something in a tree you know, how is he going to react with the smell and where does he think it's going to be coming? Man, that, that'd be super interesting just to, to watch and engage in, um, mess with the wind. There's a lot of variables you could throw in there to really get a lot of intel. And that's why I thought this would be, you'd be the perfect guy. Not only have you killed a shitload of really, really good bucks, you know, um, you're, you're super knowledgeable on how scent works in the woods, in the environment that we're trying to kill these bucks. Um, so I, I, uh, I'm excited to d dig into this. I know I'm going to learn a lot. That's an interesting topic, I guess. The, the one thing, like, I'm not gonna, I won't be able to solve the argument because the dogs oper operate completely different than a deer does. Whereas the dogs are trained to locate the least detectable amount of odor and then follow that odor to the source of the odor, which is something uh, that a deer in most situations isn't going to do the deer is going to detect the odor and then it's going to make a decision whether or not it thinks it's in trouble. And that's, I think the part that gets overlooked where the deer may or may not automatically react negatively. It's going to decide whether or not it thinks it's in, in trouble. You think about deer and, you know, living around houses and residential areas. I mean, they're con constantly in contact with human odor but they're not necessarily going to react negatively but if you leave you know 10 feet from your yard where you normally are and go into the woods then all of a sudden that's that's going to be something they're going to react completely differently to so i think the the problem solving component was probably the most interesting to me because like all dogs are capable of smelling at the the same level but 
there's only a certain percentage of dogs that are going to make really good patrol dogs. And that comes down to their ability to problem solve. And I think that's the, the same way with deer that particularly get older. And I mean, we just might as well just talk about bucks, but those deer have been better equipped to solve the problems that they're faced with than whether it's a younger deer or a deer that you wouldn't consider to be particularly bright. But that's the one thing that I think that gets kind of overlooked by hunters is the problem solving component. Yeah. I I think that's the the key. I, I hunt kind of an urban area close to houses. One thing I've noticed is the scent really doesn't have a factor, but like noise, like me walking in and stuff, there's a, a park that people walk closely closer to. Um, I've walked in on deer way closer than I ever have anywhere else. Um, I think they're just used to more of the noise of people, um, and they associate the smell with danger, but they're so accustomed to cars and doors and people walking and dogs barking that they're kind of a little more chill on that. Um, so their problem solving is kind of probably a little bit different than, you know, a deer out in the, you know, in a big wood setting where he never hears a car or never hears a, a, you know, a truck door or something. Um, but putting that dog in that many situations, you know, you get to do it weekly, let alone any trails that you actually track or you're trying to find someone. Um, you're getting a lot of Intel pretty quick on the situation. So just to start, um, when, when you, you're said that a dog is looking for the most minute smell and then going, going in after, um, to find, you know, the heaviest smell where a deer might smell the little bit of smell and completely avoid the situation. How far away or how, um, how close does that dog need to be to the area to get that wolf a scent or is it more of a ground contact scent? Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Eating better is easy with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. Well, they, they're trained to locate people two different ways. So the one way would be to track where somebody walked and locate the person that way. And the other way would be an area search where I know there's somebody in a large wooded area and I'm going to position the dog downwind and try to find the person that way. And 
I mean, the dogs and the deer are capable of smelling from a really long distance. But for me, like if I'm grid searching, and I'm looking for a person and, you know, the stakes can be fairly high where it's basically how far away would, would I do this, my grid search patterns, knowing that, you know, you're potentially risking somebody's life if, if you don't find them. So yeah. for me, if I'm going to grid search, let's say we have a two-year-old missing child and my job is to clear this however many acre section my grids will probably be about a i'm confident the dog will if i put the dog within 100 yards downwind i'm confident you know you can you can you can get indications at two three hundred yards but you know for me to tell somebody that this area is 100 percent clear it'd probably be that that hundred yard mark is probably there you know they're hundred percent probably going to be able to detect that. I see. I've, uh, I've seen deer not alert at a hundred and then I've seen deer alert at like 300. Um, and I, we were shed hunting yesterday and these deer were straight downwind of us does out there feeding. We were out in the evening and, uh, we were walking across a cut bean field and before they even picked their head up, we were probably 120 yards. I'm like, I know they can smell us. I think time of year has something to do with deer too. They're just like, I'm a, I could, I smell a human, but I'm, I feel like I'm not going to be as scared as if it's November. Like they just know <laughs> that it's cool to to chill a little bit more. Maybe they're not smelling. They're more worried about smelling food than actual people. Because that's something that like I always wondered is how can they? I know their nose is super complex, but um, just to pick out the smells. And I always go back to that. I heard it somewhere that a dog, like you smell a cheeseburger, but that dog smells the seasoning that's in the cheeseburger that you cooked, like all the individual pieces of it. Um, but it would be, it'd be awesome to be able to dig into their mind and actually understand exactly what they're going, going through. Yeah. It goes back to that decision-making. I mean, at some times of the year, they'll prioritize certain activities or odors over others, you know, during the rut, they might prioritize a breeding odor over, you know, their fear of humans. I think we've all seen videos where someone's shot a doe and a buck comes in and is trying to breed the doe right in front of them. So, I mean, that deer clearly can smell humans, but it just made the decision that it's more interested in breeding than, and being concerned for its safety. And the same thing happens with curiosity odors. I think a lot of the, the odors are fruity and different things like that, that are more of peak their curiosity. And sometimes I think with, you know, you hear with uh, like nose jammer, I've heard a lot of people talk about how younger deer will sometimes follow that straight to the tree. And that's, that's not that it eliminated the human odor. It's that, the deer was more curious than it was concerned for its safety. And with like, from any distance, there's all kinds of weird stuff that can happen with odor. And if, if the scent molecules don't come in contact with the dog's nose, they're obviously not going to find them. So that's where the argument's probably never going to get solved. Cause you know, somebody's going to say, well, the deer was directly downwind and never, smelled me because i was doing this this or that yeah. but there's there's also a likelihood that uh you know the odor never came in contact with the 
the deer's nose. Yeah, I could see that. The the thing that I always wonder is a a deer or a dog. You said will alert two three hundred yards out. You know, if if he catches a wolf or something in the wind. Um, the ground scent. How how long does that ground scent hold? I've heard a lot of different opinions. So what, the one component with ground scent is that I read a bunch of books, and there's actually a, a dog trainer back in World War Three, and they and the, the Germans trained thousands of dogs, and they kind of discovered that some of the dogs had naturally tracked the ground disturbance, which is just the the odor of crushed vegetation, like similar to when you mow your grass you release that odor. So some, some dogs would naturally be inclined to track that. And some dogs would naturally be inclined to track just the human component of that. And the way they tested it, they had a wooden wheel that they rolled across the vegetation that had zero human scent. And some of the dogs were able to track that track. And then they had another apparatus that they set up that was similar to a chairlift where they put the people over the ground without them touching the ground. And some of the dogs were able to track that. We train our dogs to kind of do both, but it leads me to believe that the deer are probably likely doing one or the other. And maybe some of the deer are blessed enough that they're inclined to look for both, which would make them better suited to survive in their environment. But when we walk to our stand, the human component doesn't last as long as the vegetative component. I think after, you know, usually when we're running training tracks and that, you know, up to about two hours is pretty good. And then after two hours, it starts to, you know, slowly seems to deteriorate. And a lot of that's based on, you know, you could make that track last longer if you had, certain odors on your boots that last longer in the environment i know like diesel and gas lasts a long time in the environment because we'll we have arson dogs that'll detect those substances and burnt buildings you know weeks after the event so those are stronger odors so if you're using the same boots that you put gas in your vehicle and then walking into the woods that track will last longer just because of that component to it hmm. yeah that's i i always tell a story on here that uh, i got ground scented by a possum one day in the stand <laughs> and i was like if i get ground scented by this possum there ain't no way a deer's coming in um and it was a few hours after um you know i'd been in the tree uh but that just you know like he could have been just smelling the disturbance of ground and say, Hey, something bigger than me came right through here. Maybe I should back up or I might get eaten. Like, you know, um, so that's something I didn't know that they actually smell the ground disturbance. Um, so, you know, accessing your stand, even if you're hundred percent set free, it's still got to be really high, you know, on the list to not get in the direction of travel where the deer are going to go. And that's, that's like the most challenging thing on a lot of these properties I hunt is the access to get into the the stand. It seems like. And then the biggest part of that is what you're walking on. Cause if you, if you can walk on dirt compared to grass, you know, that's going to be a, a way 
less detectable track. I think two years ago I was hunting and I had, I accessed kind of down uh, a field where I was able to walk on the dirt, kept left the field, kind of walked on. It was a, a deer trail that was still dirt down into kind of by a creek and then left that dirt track and then stepped over some ferns and stuff and he was able to get the tree. Well, I had a really big buck come in and basically he followed the entire way I walked. So he was walking on the dirt and he was, he was perfectly fine. I thought they were going to come from the other direction, but he, he walked it the exact way I had walked down the dirt. But as soon as he hit the one spot where I left the dirt and crushed that first fern, he completely hit the brakes and then ended up backing out of there. So, I mean, that track right there would lead me to believe that, you know, he wasn't detecting the human odor on the way in. But as soon as there was the odor from that crust vegetation, that was something that that he that he picked up up on and he would have probably came in. Uh, it would have been maybe two or three hours after I was in the tree. So mm-hmm. it will start to deteriorate. And if you can walk on, like if I'm looking for a suspect that flees the house, I'm way better if he's going through a grass and a field than if he's running on pavement because the, the pavement's going to have, you know, little to no ground disturbance odor and it's going to be, you know, straight track and, if there's any odor contact odors from what he's wearing or any human odor that that's fallen off his body as he runs. Yeah. I didn't even, that's a good point too. If you're on asphalt, that asphalt's not going to hold your scent. Plus the the asphalt smell is probably kind of overpowering, um, the smell anyways, but I just know, one guy told me one time to to imagine if you're walking out there and you smell that skunk smell, that's what the deer smell when they smell us. It's like that strong. It's just crazy that, but you see it when they're walking and they hit something. It's just like a, a you know, immediate reaction of like, wow, I, you know, I should not be here. That is not good. Um, but it's interesting that you said you, you know, the dirt, I mean, walking in the, in the water is probably the absolute best option. Um, correct creek access or something like that yeah water would probably be the best hard to do on a lot of places sometimes (laughs) you can get lucky and find something like that but um i found that if you walk in the bottom of the ravines um even if there isn't water in it a lot of times the deer don't just walk in the bottom of those ravines they cross them somewhere you know so a lot of times it gives you a little bit of cover from actually sight two to get into the stand um, we had one stand on a piece that i killed a lot of my the biggest deer i had it was perfect you walk down that ditch you it was like uh playing american gladiator though a bunch of deadfalls in it and stuff when you're going to down through it but once you got up to the stand you could pop up there and we got in the stand a couple of times and there was deer 90 100 yards away feet in the oaks and they never seemed to, to think that a person would come that way um, you know, and, and spook out of there. So one thing that I have noticed from just like rabbit hunting over the years and, and being around dogs and tracking, um, that weather has a factor. Um, so is that the same thing that you're seeing when you're, you know, when you're tracking human scent, if there's snow on the ground, is it better? If there's moisture on the ground, is it better? 
Yeah, definitely. I think that's probably one of the the misconceptions is with the rain. I think, you know, a lot of people talk about checking their cameras or doing whatever when it's raining. And there's some truth to that with it's got to be a really hard rain. But like typically moisture is a good condition for for the retention of odor. So if you know, it's just a slight mist or a slight rain. That's that's a good tracking condition for the dog. And fall is typically a good time of year for tracking to begin with, just because it's not uh, overly hot. The worst conditions are dry, hot, and windy would be the the absolute worst conditions for the, odor yeah. for for tracking or anything like that. So moisture is usually moisture is always a, a benefit yeah the worst the worst time to deer hunt for deer movement is that the worst time for them to be able to smell it's crazy how that <laughs> coincides <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh yeah that's something that it's weird you hear stuff in the industry you hear people talk about stuff and oh, i'm checking cams because it's raining and then you start doing it but then when you actually think about it um i think i heard chad sylvester say it um and he was like is it is that do people really think that that makes a difference um, and then I got to thinking about it and I'm like, well, you know, after it rains or there's a slight snow rabbit hunting, the dogs just do so much better, um, with that moisture on their nose. And I'm sure whitetail are the same way. And then it got me into the theory of, you know, why a lot of these bucks are shot in a mist storm or right after it rains. Um, they just have like a sense of more confidence to move in daylight because they feel like they can smell so much better because the moisture is in the air. Um, cause I don't know how many times right after a rain we've seen bucks or had buddies kill bucks or you hear the story, just, you know, the rain stopped, he's hitting the scrape or whatever. But I think there's something to that where deer might feel a little bit more confident or he might just be wet and want to get up. I don't know. One or the other. <laughs> That's it's tough. It might be the latter. Cause I mean, I don't, Deer are smart, but I mean, they, they only learn from what we teach them. So kind of one of the ways that I started to think about things after training the dogs was, you know, if I'm hunting a particular area or a particular buck, I'd kind of think about, okay, what did I do today? And what did the deer potentially learn from, from basically what I, what I taught them, whether that was, you know, I like to hunt in a certain area or I'd like to get out of my tree at this time or whatever, because they can pattern us, you know, fairly easily based on the information that we provide them. And I'm a hundred percent certain that they can tell the difference between individual hunters where if I messed up and shot an arrow and totally freaked this buck out, he's going to, he's going to know what I smell like where he potentially could be easier to kill by somebody else. Oh, wow. Oh, our dog, our dogs can tell the difference between people. I mean, I can run a track through an area where there's 50 people and he's going to follow that one person through that, through that group. So the deer can definitely tell the difference between individual people. So, (laughs) and I've had this conversation too with, with Andre DeQuisto, because he, he's one, he's a guy who, you know, targets single bucks during the year and, and he, and I mean, he's seen it multiple times where he's, he's all over trying to get, get a certain deer. And then, you know, that deer could do something completely 
stupid on the neighboring farm and get shot by somebody who wasn't hardly trying to <laughs> trying to kill him. So <laughs> the so deer they, they, the the deer that I'm nope. hunting probably smells me and he's like, I'm good. I'm just gonna stay You're laid down. <laughs> this guy ain't gonna kill me. <laughs> he's been trying yeah. for years. <laughs> and that's with pressure too. I mean, you know, if if you're in an area where the deer are basically allowed to grow older and bigger than, you know, they really haven't had the same negative consequences than a deer like in Michigan that, you know, he's lucky to hit three years old. Yeah. He's encountered a lot more people than, you know, some deer. Every one of those encounters he's learning from. And, you know, especially if any of those encounters are negative where, you know, he gets, wounded with an arrow or something like that i mean he's gonna that event is gonna be imprinted on his mind and he's gonna avoid any situation similar to that yeah man that's crazy like you said that you know if you upset a deer in a certain area that he could that someone else could actually kill that deer easier because he's you know he's got your number now um and i i hit a limb on a buck last year and he, you know, I think he seen me trying to get another arrow, you know, while, you know, he did that where he hopped three steps away, you know, and I'm trying to get another arrow knocked. Um, and then he took off about 90 yards staring right at me in blue. And then I never seen that deer again all season, you know. Um, but that one encounter with him was highly negative. Um, and I ran it was interesting. I ran two cameras and pretty close together there. One was a cell, one was a regular. And, uh, the red cam was, or the cell cam was where I ended up getting the opportunity at him. The red cam was maybe a hundred yards away, kind of in the same draw though. One was a low spot with some scrapes. The other spot was the high spot on the edge of the field. Um, and I never got another picture at that the opportunity spot, but a hundred yards away, I got a couple picture of him throughout the season where he was still going through there, but it seemed like he was avoiding the high side of that field because of the encounter that he had with me there, um, for the rest of the year. So not only did I educate that deer, but I also kind of ruined an area for him, um, with that encounter. So I'm going to put that in the bank for next year. And if I hunt that, that deer still there, I'm going to, hunt the bottom and hopefully he still don't like the top. <laughs> he still thinks yeah. I'm up there. <laughs> but that's, that, that's kind of exactly what I was saying. Where kind of thinking, what did I teach this deer and how do I take advantage of it? Cause I've had that happen too, where like, if you totally freak a deer out, then one, he's probably going to be less tolerant of your odor, but two, you know where he's not going to be probably. So if you can find an area where either he ran to which tells you he felt more secure where he's going to than where he just was or an area that's completely opposite so like that field edge would be opposite to the bottom and i had that happen with a big deal it's like a non-typical i don't know if it was 15 pointer or something like that but i had an encounter with him up on uh it was like this grassy meadow or whatever and he kind of hit that hundred yard mark that I was talking about where he was, he was coming downwind from me. I was, I was pretty high in a tree. So I was hoping to maybe get lucky, but 
he was walking fine. And then he hit about a hundred yards, hit the brakes and then freaked out and then ran into the, the bottom. And from that information, I figured, well, he's, he knows that the top's no longer real safe. My best bet is to go into the bottom, which I normally didn't like to go down there just because of the, the wind was less predictable, but sure enough, a couple days later, I had the same, the same exact wind. So I was like, well, if he's going to come, if he comes through the same way he did before with the same wind, he's probably just going to go where he ran to rather than take that, the high ridge. And sure enough, I was able to get eyes on him down in the bottom and he came into a grunt and was able to get an arrow in him. But if I wouldn't have kind of been thinking along those lines where, you know, what did I teach the deer and how could he react from this? You know, I probably wouldn't, uh, wouldn't have got that opportunity. And, and that came from, you know, actually training the dogs. Cause when we go down, like when I got my first dog, we go down to the, the Academy in Lansing. And we, when we originally get the dog, the dog has no training, doesn't know how to sit, doesn't know any commands or anything. So we get a totally green dog. And the first four weeks of the class are basically taught how to train the dogs and how they learn. And from there, we end up training all the, you know, the skills into the dog that they're going to need for police work. And just thinking about how animals learn, how you can teach them. And it's the same thing with deer. I mean, you could see it with bear, pretty people even. I mean, they're going to react to positive and negative reinforcement. And with deer, I think, you know, they're only going to, they only learn from what we teach them and we're smart enough to predict how they might react to something that they encountered. Yeah. It makes me think like if you, if you, uh, if you had a buck that you felt like it'd be, it would be an interesting experience that if, if you had a buck that you felt like wouldn't get bumped to the neighbors and he was kind of in an unkillable spot, if you could go in there and kind of pressure that area to force him to go to a more killable spot to kill him. <laughs> that'd be kind of a unique situation. If, you know, if you own four five, 600 acres, you feel like you could hold the deer and he was in an area where you knew you were going to bump him, bump him a couple of times and then hunt him somewhere else. Um, and that's kind of where like that bump and dump comes from too. Cause yeah. you know, I've heard a bunch of stories where guys have had bucks in unkillable spots and, you know, if you can't kill them where they're at, your best bet might be just to knock them out of where they're at and hope that you get a crack at them someplace else. Yeah, pretty pretty risky move, but um, like you said, it's, they're more than likely not, they're going to associate that area with some danger and maybe access it a different way to to up your odds a little bit. Um, but you, like you said, you did educate that deer on your scent and kind of um, your, your smell and your tactic, but it might, might work, man. That's something I've never done. I'm not, I don't think I'm brave enough to do. I don't know. I don't have enough acreage, <laughs> yeah. um, but that's the great thing with like public land is, I mean, as yeah. long as you have a handful of spots, you can just burn them up. You can just really, I wouldn't say risk stuff, but you can take, you can take chances where if you had you know, a small acreage you probably wouldn't want to do. And that's kind of the thing that I enjoy about hunting public land now is 
you know, you can, you can definitely swing for the fences and then if it doesn't work out, just go someplace else. Yeah. I scouted, um, four new pieces of three, but it's one of them's two different pieces. So I scouted three actual new pieces of public, um, four actual properties. Um, and they're all like, they all look good, but they're all burner spots. You know, I'm thinking of how can I get in here and hunt these bucks real risky and, if I burn it, it's cool. Like one of them's only open in October. I'm like, this is the ultimate burner spot. Like you got a hot October day that like you don't really have anything going on and you can hunt. Like probably should try to throw something risky at this this spot, you know, because you can't you, you don't have to worry about you know hunting these deer in November. Like they're they're not you can't. So um, really. Um, and it'd probably help the private guys around there if I scared the deer off the public anyways. (laughs) (laughs) They'd probably be thanking me (laughs) like, Hey man, he's been, he's been going in there for every November and you went in there and boogered him up. Now he's over on me. Appreciate it. (laughs) Oh, but yeah, that's when you get, when you get to thinking about scent and how they react, um, there's a thousand ways to kill these things. It's just, you know, however you get good at it. Um, and I've, I've, I've every, you know, almost every buck that I've killed has been kind of a different scenario. Um, so I really haven't found my, my go-to tactic yet. Um, still, still working on it, but on your, uh, on your social media, I've been following you since, uh, up at the lone wolf show, you had an in- interesting topic on there about gray light. Um, and I figured towards the end of this, we'd hit on that. Um, go ahead and touch base on your theory of, uh, going in at gray light. Yeah, this was something that I probably started doing 15 years ago and kind of how it happened was, I mean, I had spots I'd try to access, you know, I was doing the two hours before light and whatever, and constantly spooking deer to the point where. I almost completely gave up hunting mornings and I'm like, well, there's gotta, there's gotta be a better way to do this. So then I started kind of experimenting with going in at gray light. Part of it was, I think I had watched like white tail adrenaline or something. And I was thinking, you know, they're moving through the woods, hunting their way. Why don't I just let the deer clear out and slowly work, my trick my way to the tree just in gray light and and quickly i i found that it was just an amazing technique especially originally i tried it just around at a couple spots that had like field edges and stuff like that and it was pretty amazing where basically you know just when it's starting to get light and you'll see deer in the field and they look kind of like hay bales and you just kind of you can walk and then stop walking and just wait for those hay bales to kind of move off and then you slowly can make your make your way to your tree and there's there's like a 15 minute window where everything kind of goes silent and nothing's moving where you can get to your tree get up and i've shot multiple deer you know before i even had time to get my jacket on and i kind of went through like the numbers with the the deer that I've shot in the past years. And I I'm shooting probably in the last 15 years, I probably 
shot 70% of my deer in the morning or like into midday and only probably 30% in the evenings. So, I mean, it's been a tremendous tactic for me and I kind of expanded it to, you know, even big woods areas, I do it. And there's a bunch of different benefits from it. One, you're not spooking deer. If, if you can get to your tree two hours before and you're not spooking deer, then fine, keep doing it. But if that's not working for you, it's definitely something to think about. And it's, it's not for everybody. Like if you're, if you're going to be a guy who's hunting a bed or deep into bedding and you're trying to beat the deer, you know, it's not, it's not a tactic you would use in those situations, but for a guy who's kind of hunting transitions or just outside of bedding, you know, it's really, it's really been effective for me. And as a, a public land hunter, it also gives me the benefit of where, you know, I usually have three or four different spots in mind and I'm able to drive and kind of gauge the pressure in different areas. I can kind of figure out where all the other hunters are there in the mornings and make my decisions where I'm going to go that morning or where I'm even going to go that afternoon. And then over the course of the year, it keeps me fresh. It keeps me ready to grind it out. You know, you're not, you're saving probably two hours of sleep every morning, which uh, adds up in a hurry. So yeah. for me, it, it, it's worked great. It matters what kind of spots you hunt. Like it's not, it's not a tactic for everybody, but if you're accessing through a field and you're constantly spooking deer, it's definitely the way to go. Yeah. I, I've seen that tactic and I just picked up a new piece of private, um, just a couple of weeks ago. And it's, it is a very, very, very long stretch. No timber to the north of there. All the timbers to the south. And the access is a long, long ways across the field to get to the timber on the south end of this piece. And all the timber is south of that. Um, so, you know, if you went in there during in the morning to get in there and hunt, you know, that block of timber to get, maybe get in a pinch point or whatever, um, you're going to bump deer out there because that's the only ag. There's no ag to the south. So those deer are going to be on that ag um, 100%. Um, so you're going to bump deer. So I think this is something I will utilize there. Um, and another thing, it kind of gives you, like if you're going to do a hanging hunt scenario and do this, it kind of gives you a better idea of what the spot you're setting up in is before you actually set up. Um, cause that's something that I ran into a lot, you know, going into a new area with a stand on my back, you get up there, shooting looks good. And then, you know, the sun comes up and you're like, man, I need to be two trees over. Like it, in that gray light scenario, when you're set up, you know, you're like, man, if I was right there, you know, and then you get down, you set up anyways. Um, it would just eliminate that step as well. Um, but in that area, that's definitely something that I will be, um, keen and on and then i have other areas where i've hunted there and the deer are there two minutes after shooting like they're like they're right when you can shoot um so that's a spot that i need to get in earlier like i need to get in an hour early there and get set up because i actually spooked deer last year going to that stand um so like you said it's definitely a situational area but that's more of a timber setting coming off of a, a hay field um but th this ag spot going in a gray light makes a ton of sense. Um, but it, uh, 
the main thing, like you said, you don't want to educate these deer. And if you bump, you know, bump that buck off that field in the morning, more than likely he's not going to come back there in the evening because he's going to think you're still there. You know, at least not in daylight. I've had it. It's, it's amazing. Like once you do it, like it's amazing how it works. Cause I don't know what's going on with their eyes or if they're not used to seeing people at that time of day, but I've had multiple times where I could have shot bucks that come straight at me thinking I'm a, I'm another deer. And then I've had, you know, I've had, you know, bucks chasing does in the field where I'm just slowly walking and then wait till they get off, able to get through, get to my tree. And then that same buck and doe come back and, to the you know the open area he's chasing her come right by me and i'm able to to shoot him and then i've also had it where you're kind of talking where i've silhouetted a huge deer walking on a ridge just as it's getting gray light and i knew which deer it was and then like you're saying if i would have went earlier i would have bumped him but in that situation, I saw him, figured he might come back the same way, ended up sitting all day and then shooting him right at nice. right at uh, shooting light. So it's amazing what you can, because you can see them. They look, like, they, they look like hay bales. They'll kind of move around. You just kind of let them move off till you can't see them and then you know, as long as you have the wind in your favor, you know, wind in your face when you're, yeah. when you're doing this. I think they probably, probably feel pretty safe at, at that time frame. They're like, it's not light yet. You know, we're still safe. So even if they do see something, they're not a hundred percent sure. Um, they know humans really aren't, you know, a danger at nighttime. Uh, so I think there's probably something to that where, you could get a little closer to those deer in that situation and they wouldn't run off. They probably put up with a little bit more. Yeah. I can't explain it, but there's like a 10, 15 minute window where there's no squirrels, no nothing. Yeah. yeah. Right. When you get in the stand, you're like, man, today's going to be crap. There ain't nothing moving. And then, then this stuff finally comes alive. If you can time it and get up your tree. And basically I write everything in a book where, you know, if I hunt this spot, that spot, or that spot, I have to leave. I have to be dressed and walk from my truck at this time, and then that'll time it. So if, if I have a long walk, then I have to, you know, I might walk 30, 40 minutes of it in the pitch black, but then that last, you know, whatever, half a mile, quarter of a mile will be in the gray light when I'm kind of going through the area that, that really matters for that hunt. So you have to you have to time it and you're always feel like you're rushed and the biggest feelings kind of the feeling that you don't know <laughs> when people are driving by and you're getting dressed that everybody thinks you're late or you don't know what you're doing, but that's probably the only, the only negative to the technique. But other than that, it works, it works really good. Yeah. I mean, if, it, if you're on public, it, it, there's nothing worse than being set up and then someone coming in on you, you know, but, this, if you kind of were on public and you were the last guy to leave the parking lot, you kind of know where everybody was at and you could kind of avoid them as well. And then it walk in and gray light it. So, yeah, because I'll know, I'll know where everybody's like, I see this truck here, that truck there. You know, I'll never, if there's a truck parked there, I don't do it just because, you know, that guy probably wouldn't appreciate it. 
I'll look for a spot where nobody's at. And then I'm able to gauge, you know, where's the pressure coming from? Cause I've made the decision too, where you see, you see four pucks or four trucks parked in this parking lot. It's like, okay, four guys walked in here. Where is this going to push the deer and pick my spot based on kind of playing off where I know everybody's at. And then no guys were there in the morning. So you can decide whether you think they're going to be back there in the afternoon. And then there's also spots that are awesome that get pounded. And if you drive by one of those spots and there's no cars there, it's like, okay, you know, there's going to, you're probably going to be the only person unless there's someone even later than you. Yeah. But most likely you're going to have that spot. Just if you hunt just public and you had the ability to know which spots nobody was hunting, what type of advantage that would be. Yeah, that's true. You know, you could drive past the East parking lot and every, every day you hunt and it's empty. You're like, man, there ain't been no one up here for a week. Like it's really, really good Intel to know. And especially if you know kind of what bucks there and no one's been up there for a week, you know, you could say, okay. Even for the afternoon, if nobody's parked there in the morning, you know, you're going to have a good, you can kind of think, well, the deer should be kind of moving normally. They weren't messed with in the morning. Nobody was parked there. Maybe I'll take a run at it this afternoon. Yeah. That's a great tactic. There's, you know, there's the, there's a lot of aspects of that. You know, there's the aspect of not spooking deer going in, you know, being able to pick your tree a little bit better, being able to scout on your way in to make you maybe see some new sign that you didn't know about. You're slowing down. Um, and then there's the aspect of knowing what the other hunters are doing on public, um, and knowing, you know, where the, the pressure is and where they're not, because if you're the first guy in, you're in there two hours early and then you set all day or you make a move and then you're one of the last guys out, you have no idea what happened on that property other than what you did that day, you know, but if you're able to scout it out that morning, the parking lots real quick and then go hunt, that's going to give you a lot of intel on what actually is going on on that piece. Yeah, and then you'll see, you'll see headlamps in the woods too. I mean, you'll you'll get a lot of intel where you know you see a truck here. You know, is he going into the swamp or is he going up the ridge? Take a glance, you see a headlight going up the ridge. It's like, okay, the guy parks here. That's where he's going. Yeah. Not, every so often, guys will try to throw stuff off, and which is what I do. With, I mean, I don't park probably within two miles where i'm going in now so yeah i know with your uh with your abilities let's get into that i i've been i've been on the fence with this for like two years i'm i'm right on the edge of 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 purchasing one of these mobile deals so go ahead go ahead and talk about what you know your your e-bike brand and then some of the advantages that you found over the years using them so yeah i'm started a a company stealth hunting e-bikes kind of four years ago i started using a fat tire bike just a pedal bike for hunting and then two years ago i was gonna kind of build my own thousand watt mid-drive where you add the motor to it and the battery and all that and i started researching you know building bikes and doing different things and somewhere along the way i got tied in with a couple different companies to where I realized that I could, you know, buy and sell bikes for cheaper than I could probably build them. 
and have a better product. And when I, when I got into it, I was, you know, I wanted to buy something that was high quality. I didn't want to just buy a cheap bike. So, you know, in the hunting industry, you're thinking about the big three, which, you know, Quiet Cat, Rambu, Baku. So I wanted something high quality, but I was looking at the prices and thinking, you know, where the heck is the, where the heck's this, this price tag coming from? So what I sell is comparable to those bikes. I build high-end, mid-drive bikes that are built to climb hills. Hunters don't want to pedal. You know, we want to use these bikes to get where we need to go without pedaling, without getting sweaty. You know, and I'm hunting public. I'm parking my truck two miles away so nobody has any idea where the heck I'm at. I'll use it that way and then you know, any places where you can access even further, whether that's on a bike trail or a lot of our stuff up here is getting gated off where bikes are still allowed on them. So that's, uh, that's what I'm selling. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of different bikes out there. There's some good ones. There's some bad ones. You know, I'm trying to build a, a bike where you're, you're getting value for your money, where I'm upgrading parts that matter for hunters and making sure that they get a they get a quality product and I'm working with probably three different companies and the companies I work with are the companies that supply Rambu, Quiet Cat and Baku and I can offer a f- almost identical product for you know as much as $2000 less. Yeah, I know um you had one at the show there. I'm not sure if it was Justin's or yours or whose who's it was, but Josh Prophet got on it and took off. And Josh is not a small guy by any means. <laughs> and uh, uh, Josh was like, "Dude, this thing rips." <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't know you good enough to be like, "Hey, man, let me let me go for a ride on that thing." But Josh is like, "Dude, you got to go ask him." I'm like, "Nah, that's all right. I'll I'll because uh, if I ride on it, I'll buy one. That's my that's my my go to." So. I, uh, but Josh, you know, he's, he's a big dude. Um, and he's, he, he said it was pulling right. And that's, you know, the Quistos don't live in a flat area. Their, their road's pretty hilly to get, get to their house out there. Um, and he was like, oh, it was ripping me all around. So you definitely have a, a solid product there. And, uh, if it can haul Josh, Josh around, it can haul my skinny ass around pretty good, I bet. <laughs> Yeah, they're a pretty amazing tool. That that one, I that one wasn't one of mine. That was one of uh, Steve Pinkston Hardcore E Cycles. Oh, he, is he, that what it was? Oh, okay. He builds a good bike too. Yeah. I had one of my, I had a couple of mine at the Michigan show, and you know, kind of finalizing. I kind of tried to, you know, innovate some things where I have two bikes that don't have derailers where they're just a single speed bike that's that's geared to climb where they'll climb about any hill you put in front of them. And then you don't have to worry about your derailleur catching a stick yeah. or a corn stock or anything like that. So that's that those models have been really popular with guys just because, you know, some days we talk about breaking off two, three derailleurs in a year. And, you know, just with the single speed, it's just, yeah, I I more uh, bulletproof. I did a a deep dive into before I you know I'm gonna I'm, like I said I'm gonna purchase one more than likely at some point just 
it's a pretty big investment, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, uh, you know, there's a, there's the mid drive, there's the back drive, you know, the suspension, there's a lot goes into, you know, there's single drive motors, you know, multiple gear motors, pedal assist bikes, you know, and then you look at the price tag and I bet you some people are buying bikes are getting, you know, they're getting a 500 watt pedal assist bike and they're like, man, this thing's junk, but it's what they got. You know, they don't have the power to, to take on those hills and might be right driving down the riverfront, you know, somewhere on concrete. But what you're trying to put it through, going through a cornfield that the mud's soft and you're sinking in two inches, um, it just wasn't made for that. So I'm doing my deal diligence before I before I purchase one. But um, you've been using them for quite a while. What with with scent, I would say that would be a huge factor on going in and out. Um, does that ground disturbance? Have you noticed that they pick up on any of that or, or not? It'll be, I mean, it's a different, uh, ground track. I mean, cause you'd still have like, they're not scent free cause you still have like back to that, that, uh, that test I was talking about with like, where it was like the chairlift type contraption. So you're still going to have, you'd still have some human odor, but, uh, it'd be completely different because the the dogs can tell the difference between, you know, the weight of people, even, you know, for how much disturbance there is on the ground. So it'd be, it'd be a total different odor profile. And from what, what I've seen and what other guys who are using the bikes are saying, a lot of guys are driving them straight to their tree and as long as you like lean it down on the ground where it's not like upright, everybody's saying that it's amazing how well the, the deer will tolerate the bikes. And a, another thing with that single speed was it got rid of a lot of that, the noise from the derailleur and the chain rattling around. Yeah. I, I, uh... so the, bike, or the bikes are, I mean, they're, uh, I wouldn't have shot the buck I shot last year. I would have never shot without the buck or without the bike, just because it would have been too far for me to really want to tackle. You know, yeah, no, that's like, where I'm I at. That's where I'm at right now. Is highly motivated. You know but... where a giant buck is, but you're like, man, by the time I get back there, get set up, like, how am I going to be able to hunt? Like, am I going to be so wore out, and am I going to be able to, you know, set the full day? And then you got to how many days am I going to be able to go in there? Like two days, three days, like, cause getting in there a couple days isn't bad, but the third, fourth day you're like, okay, this is terrible. And every time you don't encounter the deer, it just gets worse and worse to go back in there. <laughs> yeah, it's so nice. You get an air conditioned ride home Yeah, in your face. At literally get, everybody that hunts a piece of public, yeah. At literally everybody that hunts a piece of public, almost besides me, has one. I'm still out there pedaling like a dumb shit. <laughs> yeah, you go. We gotta get you hooked up. Yeah, I know. I need to. I need to to, to rip one. But like I said, it's just such a an investment, man. If it, it's just like I'm too. It is. It's a huge investment, yeah. which is where I'm. I'm very sympathetic to you know, my customers where, I mean, I want to provide them with, with a quality product because it, they're not cheap and then provide 
good customer service. I had one guy last year who lost his battery on the way to Kansas. And he called me in a freaking panic. And I mean, as a hunter, I understand you need the bike to work when it needs to work. So, I mean, I next day aired him a battery to Kansas at dealer cost. And, you know, I'm definitely going to take care of anybody who buys a bike for me. Nice. Yeah. That, that's one thing. If you lose your battery, it's kind of a, it's just a pedal mobile then, but. And you're pedaling. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, well, I, uh, uh, what, go ahead and let the people know where they can find you on social and where they can find your bikes if they're interested in checking them out. And then we'll wrap it up here. Sure. On Facebook, just my name, Dieter Cocken. And then on Facebook, the, the e-bikes are stealth hunting e-bikes. And then I also am on Instagram. I think it's either my name or at Ranger Matthews. Yeah, Ranger and Matthews that, is where I where I found you. Yeah, that used to well, that used to be my Facebook profile till I got shut down <laughs> last, last fall. Well, I went to Kentucky for uh, the opener. And I was in one of those campgrounds where it had open Wi-Fi or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I had a fake Facebook name going way back because I originally had no intention on doing anything on Facebook. And I needed a name to post pictures to. I'm actually a taxidermist on the side, too. So I needed to post pictures for my taxidermy site from Facebook. So I made up this fake guy. And then the fake guy ended up like just spiraling out of control where... I started posting thing under his name and then that was like, became my fake identity basically. Cause I, that's who I was known as. Nobody knew my <laughs> real name. So then my account got hacked and then I couldn't prove my identity. So then I got shut down by Facebook oh, and then I, man. So I had to restart all my social media stuff with, under my real name. Like, less than a year ago i guess so so that's where so i used to be ranger matthews on facebook but now i think i just kind of gave him a tribute on the (laughs) ranger matthews and then uh the e-bikes i just started two days ago i put posting some stuff for the e-bikes on instagram and that's at stealth hunting i think all right well hopefully i'll see you at the iowa show again i'll make an appearance for sure hopefully you're there yeah, I plan on being there. Look forward to it. All right, man. I appreciate you chatting with us tonight. All right. Thank you. All right, guys. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Definitely a lot to dissect about scent, ground scent, pulling cams, gray light, you know, hunting in general, how to set up. Um, awesome, awesome podcast. Um, appreciate you guys tuning in all the way to the end. Love you guys. Like always, uh, try to do the right thing. Try to leave a legacy. Whitetail Legacy is out until I'm coming in your ear holes at 11 a.m. Central Time next Wednesday. Thank you, guys. Spend your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. (laughs) Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss Life on the Water every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. (laughs) The destination for outdoor entertainment. You want to succeed, you want to fish, you want to be one of the greatest. 
Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.